Good morning, Summit Bible Church. Good to be with you this Sunday morning. If you want to get a head start, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 25 all the way through verse 32 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, we're inching our way through this book, passage by passage, to hear what God has for us, really to understand what it means to live a life worthy of our calling. So Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 this morning. Well, I'll tell you, I remember the first day of my first job. I was hired as a dishwasher for a sports bar and grill. It was, uh, you know, one of those dirty jobs. Had cheese all over my face and stomach and legs after washing nacho dishes all day. Um, it was great. But I remember, I remember the first day, I, I, I worked opening day for this restaurant. Very busy. Uh, walked into the kitchen, the double doors opened, and man, it was a chaotic scene. The, the chefs were screaming at their associates and uh, waiters and waitresses flying in and out of the kitchen with plates, you know, hearkening to the chefs' complaints that customers were giving and taking plates out. Uh, and I remember looking at the dishwashing station, and there, about 10 feet tall, a pile of dishes that needed to be washed. Welcome to your first day. I just remember looking at that stack of dishes and this dishwashing machine that I didn't, had no clue how to use. And I just remember thinking, where do I even start? I, I know in principle my job is pretty simple. What is it? Wash dishes. Okay, that's the easy part. But how do I go about this? What, what plates do I need to prioritize because those are the ones that are used most often? How do I use this dishwashing machine that looks like a big brick robot and you're shuffling plates through? You know, which dishes do you have to scrub a little bit more intentionally because, yes, that nacho cheese will just stick on and stay on throughout the dishwashing process. There's a whole practical process to washing dishes that I just wasn't taught through. And so, trial by fire, first day, what do you do? You just get after it. You just start scrubbing dishes. But I really wish that my boss had given me some instructions, some practical, where do you start? How do you get through this process? Well, okay, long story short, here's the point. This passage today in Ephesians is the practical instruction that we all need for everyday life. Okay? These are very practical commands for you to apply this week. And let me tell you something, there will be commands in here that you will have to apply this week. This is everyday Christianity. You could title the message, uh, Practical Commands for Christ-Centered Community. We've, we've heard the principles. You know, remember last week, the principles were uh, learn your master right? We're following Jesus, trying to become more like him. Put off sin, put on good deeds and righteousness. Be constantly renewing your mind. Those are the principles, right? Today, it's the very practical. We go from principles to practical. So here's what you need to know, Christian, sitting out there. It would be a shame. It would be a crying shame to go through a passage like this 
and to not apply it to your life. So what I'd like you to do is as we go through these five very practical commands, I want you to write down one or two specifically that you are going to seek to apply this week. Because it is a shame to get such easy, practical wisdom from the scriptures and then just to ignore it. To walk away unchanged as if nothing happened. But we want to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Amen? So let's commit to being doers of these practical commands in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. You're going to see a lot of put off and put on in this passage, but it's going to become very specific and practical. You can't help but read through this text and see Jesus as well. You're going to see things in the text here that Jesus did perfectly. And so we're going to see Christ even amidst the practical and the commands this morning. So before we dive into these five very practical commands that we are going to apply in our lives, let me, let me uh, open our time in prayer. Bow with me. <sighs> Heavenly Father, God, the Christian life is difficult. Oh, but it is wholesome. It is satisfying. God, help us not to look at these commands in the scriptures and to be deterred by them. To not think of them as just rules, but Lord, help us to see Christ in them and help us to want to grow to become like Christ by applying them. God, we need your strength. We need your strength to obey these commands. We need your spirit to fill us, to help us that we could depend upon your spirit to live an obedient life, to live a life that glorifies you first and foremost, and that in glorifying you, God, we know that it will be for our good and the benefit of others around us. So help us, Lord, to be practical. Help us to be applicable, to apply these commands in our life. And we'll give you all the glory for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, practical command number one, speak truthfully. Speak truthfully. Why don't you look down at the text, Ephesians 4, 25. It says this, Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. There you have a put off. Put away the falsehood. And we have the put on. Speak the truth. That therefore at the beginning of the verse is really just a connection, a transition from the principle to the practical. So the first practical command on our list has to do with your mouth, your speech, the words that you say. Now, why is your speech important? Why is your speech important? Well, firstly, your speech reveals your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. See, something you can never say. Kids and parents, you can never say, oh, I didn't mean it. Yes, you did. If it came out of your mouth, the scriptures tell us it was in your heart. No matter how horrible or awful it sounded, what comes out of our mouth reveals our heart. Say, so it's very important for us to apply practical commands to guard our mouths. And secondly, another reason why this is important to go after our speech is that your speech can be very dangerous even destructive. 
James chapter 3, verse 6, is a, is a very powerful text. It says this, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Ouch. Did you know that passage was in the Bible? Wow. The tongue is dangerous. Our speech can be very, very destructive. And I'll tell you, one of the most dangerous and destructive sins of speech is lying. Lying. Falsehood. Falsehood or lying is speaking against the truth. It doesn't matter what kind of lie it is. You know, it could be a white lie. It could be a half lie, an almost lie, a black lie, a green lie. They're all lies. They all seek to either hide, avoid, or work against the truth. Imagine if I were to invite you over to dinner at our house. I invite you over to dinner and I give you my address and I say, be here at 6 p.m. And you tell me, okay, I'll be there. And then you never show up. Oh, we were stood up. Can't believe it. No text, no call, stone cold, no show. Now, it doesn't matter where you were. It doesn't matter how close you were in proximity to my house, whether you were in Florida or you're in my neighbor's backyard. If you didn't show up to my house, you didn't tell the truth and you didn't keep your commitment. You, you failed, didn't you? The same is true with lies. It doesn't matter how close you get to the truth. If you don't speak the truth, it is falsehood. Anything less then the truth is unacceptable. Half-truths, almost-truths, white lies are worse. This includes withholding pertinent information. Maybe withholding pertinent tax information. Uh-oh. This includes leading someone on towards something that's not true. Defrauding someone. This includes saying yes when you've already determined in your mind the answer is going to be no. Why do we lie to one another? What's the motive behind lying? Well, a motive could be pride. You lie to someone because you want to maintain your reputation. You want to save face. You want to exaggerate to make yourself look better than you really are. Why else do you lie? Maybe you have a fear of man. You're afraid of what people might think if you told them the truth. Maybe you lie to avoid necessary conflict. You know, sometimes the truth stings and it results in an uncomfortable conversation or situation. Whatever the motive is, this passage tells us all falsehood needs to be put away from us. That should not be a characteristic of the Christian life. Christians should not be known as liars. We need to put that kind of speech away from us. Why? This text tells us. Look back at the verse. Why should we put away falsehood and speak the truth? Look at the last phrase there. For we are members of one another. You remember, we're part of the same body. 
Paul beckons us back to unity. We are one body together, so why would we lie to mislead another body part? You know, it would be unhelpful for the eyes to mislead the hands when there's a flying object heading for your, fla- for, for your face, right? For your eyes to tell your hands, oh, there's nothing to worry about. What's going to happen? The thing's going to hit you right between the, no- or the eyes on your nose, right? That is unhelpful. Obviously, your eyes will tell your hands to react and block the object or to m- your feet to move away from impact. Similarly, Christian, listen, it's unhelpful. It could be even dangerous and destructive to mislead a fellow brother or sister from the truth. It's dangerous. It's unhelpful. It's misleading. Why would we do that to one another when we're members of one another? I want to encourage you, believer, put away falsehood from your marriage. Put away falsehood from your friendships. Put away falsehood from the work environment. Put away falsehood from your conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not pretend. Do not fake them out. Do not mislead them. They're your members of one another. They're part of the body. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. That which aligns with the scriptures and that's that which you know is to be true. Because listen to this, even if it stings, even if it makes you look bad, even if it's uncomfortable, because the temporary sting of truth is far better than the lifelong hurt of lies. Put away falsehood and speak truthfully. It's practical command number one. Practical command number two, just moving through the text here, anger righteously. Anger righteously. That's, I know, a funny point, but I had to make it work. Anger righteously. Look at what verse 26 and 27 says. It says, be angry. Whoa. Did you know that was in the Bible? Be angry. But what does it say next? And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry, Christian. That's right. Be angry and do not sin. Is that possible? Have you thought about that? Is it possible to be angry and not sin? Well, it's possible because the scriptures tell us this is a command. Okay, so this is a command for us. Scriptures are authoritative. They're inerrant. They're not wrong. So this isn't a mess up by the Apostle Paul. We can be angry and not sin. And let me tell you something else. The person we follow, our master, wasn't he at times angry? And he was sinless. He was without sin entirely. Let's look at a couple of those examples from the Lord Jesus Christ. When was Jesus angry? When did we see him angry? We saw him angry on in a couple of occasions. First, we saw him angry in the temple clearing. Do you remember when the, when the Lord came into the temple and he cleared it out? He knocked over tables and he commanded those money changers to get out of there. That was an act of anger. Look at John 2, 16 to, or just 16 here. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Interesting, Jesus moves quickly to the defense of his father. So he was angry over his father being mistreated, uh, abused, maligned. 
The second instance that we see Jesus angry, we see him angry with the Pharisees. We see him angry with the Pharisees, and he was angry because they were upset he healed someone on the Sabbath. And Mark 3, 5 says, he looked around at them with anger. He's angry because he healed a weak man, a withered man's hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were angry with him about that. In both of these situations, I want you to notice something. Jesus becomes angry for the sake of others, not himself. It is not a selfish anger. It's not a prideful anger. It is a selfless anger. John MacArthur sums it up well when he says, there's two main reasons Jesus was angered. Number one, when the father was maligned. Number two, when others were mistreated. He was never selfishly angry at what was done to him, and this is the measure of righteous anger. Christian, you can be angry and without sin. It is anger at the defense of your Father in heaven and anger at the defense of others who are being mistreated, abused, Maligned. Let me give you some practical examples. What can be? What can we be? Rachi- sorry. What can we be righteously angry about? Well, we can be righteously angry about abortion. We can be righteously angry that the mass murder of the least of these children in the womb. What are other things we can be righteously angry about? We can be righteously angry with racism. We can be righteously angry when we see there's prejudice toward people made in the image of God. That should upset us. That should make us angry. We can be angry with abuse that we see of any kind, physical, emotional abuse, whenever the weak are taken advantage of. That should stir in us an angry spirit. We can be angry when false teachers and false teaching lead so many people away from the truth, just like the Pharisees tried to do. We can be angry and hate sin and the consequences of sin in our life, especially the pride and self-righteousness in our own hearts, because that is most like the Pharisees, and that's not like Jesus. So we're angry when the father's maligned. We're angry when others are mistreated. But you know what's not on that list? Here are things that you should not be angry about when you're offended. When you feel personally attacked. When things don't go your way. Or when you lose control in a situation. When you're hurt. When you're beaten. Even if you're crucified. Because that's not the Lord's anger. The Lord Jesus wasn't angry over those things. That is unrighteous anger. That's sinful anger. That is selfish anger. Be like Christ. Be like Christ. Be angry for the sake of God and others. Not for yourself. How often are you more angry over yourself being mistreated or slandered against or gossiped against, whatever, how, you're, you're more often angry for those reasons and less often angry when you see others mistreated or when you see God blasphemed in the workplace, at home, wherever. Be angry and do not sin, the scriptures say. 
Look at, at the preceding points here. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The longer you hold a grudge, Christian, the more useful you are in the hands of the evil one. Give Satan an angry person with time and they'll do a lot of damage. They'll do a lot of damage in their own life and they'll do a lot of damage in the life of others. Don't give the devil that kind of weapon. He prowls around like a lion seeking to devour you. Be angry, but don't be angry long. Be quick to make amends. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to forget. Be quick to apologize. Be quick to reconcile. Let love cover a multitude of sins and don't hold a grudge. Don't hold a grudge because that is an opportunity for the evil one to use you for your own destruction and the destruction of others. Anger righteously, Christian, selflessly, not selfishly. Practical command number three, work honestly. Work honestly. Here we are just moving along. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, put off stealing. But rather let him labor, put on labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, don't take what you have not earned, but take what you earn and share it. Take what you earn and share it. Now, listen. This verse is not advocating a preferred economic system. See, the capitalists will take this verse and say, see, you earn what you get with your own hands, right? And then the socialist says, but yeah, what, but what do you do with what you earn? You share it, right, with anyone in need. This verse is not advocating a preferred economic system, okay? I'm not going to tell you which one's right and which one's wrong. The Bible doesn't. But this is advocating, listen, a Christian work ethic, and Christian generosity. So this is a command for you, Christian, to have a good work ethic and to share and give generously. What is the Christian work ethic? Could we sum it up in a verse? Yes, we can. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3.23. I think this verse really encapsulates the Christian work ethic. Here it is. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. If you want to write down just kind of a, a catchphrase, something helpful to remember this, write this down. All work, hard work, Christ's work. All work, hard work, Christ's work. Whatever you do, all work. Work heartily, hard work for the Lord. Christ's work and not for men. You know what this means? Whether you are a plumber or a pastor, whether you're a student or a stay-at-home mom, whatever you do, all work. Don't separate the secular and the sacred. All work is to be done unto the Lord. All work should be done heartily. That brings us to the second part here, hard work. Work heartily. This means that you give your best effort. 
This means that sometimes you sweat. This means that sometimes you stay focused, you labor, you toil. Don't be lazy. Take notes from the ant. Don't leave the job half done. Work hard in whatever you do. Stay-at-home moms, work hard as unto the Lord. Plumbers, work hard as unto the Lord. Pastors, I need to work hard as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. And number three, it's Christ's work as for the Lord, not for men. You don't work hard to be recognized. Not to have your picture up on the uh, wall, employee of the month or student of the month. You don't work hard for the pat on the back for mom and dad, not for the pay raise, not for the power that comes with the position. We do all work, hard work for the Lord. To the glory of God. Whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. To glorify Him. That's the Christian work ethic. Work honestly. But don't forget the generous spirit. So that He may have something to share with anyone in need. Christians are generous. Your paycheck, men and women, your paycheck's not yours. It's not for whatever you want to do with it. It's not, you know, to fill, fulfill your selfish desires, or it's not even ultimately to, for the provision of your family. You know whose it is, first and foremost? It's the Lord's. Do work, all work, hard work as unto the Lord. It's the Lord's money. He gave you what you earned. First, first Timothy 6, this isn't on the PowerPoints, but it says this, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, get this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So that, that hard work that the rich guy puts in to earn a decent wage, that wasn't ultimately given to him for him. That was God's money given to him for the benefit of others. They are to do good, First Timothy 6 says. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Are you generous? Are you generous? Do you give generously? Do you give generously to the, to the, uh, to the ministry? Do you give generously to the church? Do you give generously to those around you that you see in need? You might think, well, I'm not rich, Morgan. I'm not rich. You may not be American rich, but you are biblically rich. You are rich according to the scriptures. God has provided your needs, hasn't he? You have a roof over your head, clothes on your back. Thank you for wearing those this morning. You know, food on your plate, generally three times a day. You are wealthy. You have been provided for, and you have some in excess. God commands us all to be generous with our wealth, to be generous with our money, to give generously, selflessly, sacrificially. We see an incredible example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when the Macedonians gave out of their want. They gave out of nothing in a sense. They were very poor, but Paul commends them for giving generously even amidst their poverty. How much more should we be generous givers when we live in lavish wealth? Lavish wealth. 
And if you're still having trouble with generosity, if you're still holding on to that paycheck tightly, if you don't want to give, you don't want to share, I encourage you to renew your mind with this truth. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Look at the most generous man of all time. The man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave His very life on a cross for you. He gave everything, past the paycheck, His whole life on the cross for you. How much more should we, as His followers, give? So work honestly and be generous. Number four, we're moving along here. Speak uplftingly. Speak upliftingly. Not sure if upliftingly is a word. It tried to autocorrect it when I was typing in these sermon slides, but I'm going to use it. And kids, I'm sorry for the long word that you had to fill in your <laughs> sermon blanks this morning. Upliftingly. Look at 29. Oh, and this one hit me really hard. This one hit me really hard. This is one that I need to work on. Just letting you know, as your pastor, I need to work on things too. I need to apply the scriptures too. This one hit me hard. It says this, verse 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the contrast in this verse is between talk that corrupts and talk that builds up. So put away talk that corrupts, put on talk that builds up. This Greek word that is translated corrupt is also the Greek word for rotten, putrid, spoiled food. So think about it. What does it mean that food is rotting? Well, the bacteria and the fungi are decomposing the food. That's what it means that food is rotten and spoiled. And, and Paul says your corrupt words are like bacteria-infested food flying out of your mouths. It's intended to break down the person in front of you. You've heard the phrase, sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You've heard the phrase? Yeah. I'll tell you, there, there's not a more fallacious catchphrase in all of history. Words hurt. Words hurt. Words do break down. Words hurt bad. Sometimes words get past even, you know, the physical. Maybe it's easier to take a hit or a punch, but it's much more difficult to take a harsh word from somebody. That sits and does damage and resonates a lot longer, doesn't it? Even some of you right now. You're thinking about corrupt words that have been directed towards you. Words that have hurt you in your past. And oh, they hurt bad. Words that have even crushed you. Condescension. Patronizing. Belittling. Humiliating. Embarrassing. Mocking. Defaming. Shaming. Demoralizing. 
disheartening, discouraging, deflating, disappointing, rejecting, scoffing, oppressing, even harassing words. You remember them, don't you? When those words were spoken toward you? Consider the way you talk, Christian, the way you talk with your spouse, the way you talk to your kids, the way you talk to your coworkers, your employees, your employers, the way you talk to the slow clerk at the grocery store, the way you talk to the unaware driver on the road, the way you talk to your neighbor who plays his bonsuri flute late into the hours of the night. That's my neighbor, by the way. Are they rotten words or are they words that build up, that give grace to those who hear them? Notice this. This should not be overlooked. Look at verse 30. It is connected by this conjunction to the previous command. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, the rotten words you speak are one of the ways that you actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This word for grief is not like good grief. The Holy Spirit's not like good grief or a little bit annoyed or frustrated. This word for grief is deep sorrow, anguish. He grieves when rotten words come out of our mouths. He grieves when we choose sinful words over spirit-filled, uplifting words. Let me tell you this. You probably wouldn't have said it if you saw the presence of the Holy Spirit manifest himself in the room when you were talking to that person. You probably wouldn't have said it the way that you said it, would you? You'd feel even more awful if you saw the rotten words fly out of your mouth and then you look over to take a glance at the Holy Spirit who is grieving because of those words. Oh, that would hurt you, wouldn't it? We tend to view our sin as it's transactional. And we don't view our sin as being personal. In other words, you might think, oh, I spoke harshly to my spouse. Or I said something I shouldn't have said. You know what, Lord? Put it on my invoice. (laughs) Just put it on the bill that Jesus paid. Okay, I know that's taken care of by the cross. I'm forgiven, so I'm just going to move on. But we don't consider every moment when we sin the personal offense that it is to our God. The fact that our sin continues to even grieve Him. Grieve the Holy Spirit. When your kids are broken over harsh words that you've let spill out. When your spouse is left demoralized because you won the argument, but they've got nothing left to say. When that coworker was put in their place because they were wrong and you were right and you made sure to let them know it through your words and your tone. The person stands there speechless, defeated, broken, Sometimes they're in tears, and you might feel good for a moment. You might feel like, yes, I really won that argument. I really did a good job there. Might feel strong, 
But consider this, as those rotten words fly out of your mouth, they're not the only person you made cry. The Holy Spirit grieves. He grieves. And if you could only see the tears running down the face of God when you say words like that, rotten words that come out, that are meant to tear down people. I think if we considered that more often, we would sin less with our mouths, wouldn't we? We would say less hurtful things toward people. Why would you say hurtful things to another person? Why would you say hurtful things to your God? The same Holy Spirit, by the way, where the text says, indwells us and seals us for our redemption. This is the promised Holy Spirit, the helper, the one who makes sure we get to the end. And he indwells us. He's with us always. And consider that next time you speak. I don't want to grieve him. I don't want to grieve the Spirit. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I said, you know, last week, or maybe a couple weeks ago, remember to ask yourself two questions before you speak. You remember those questions? What do you say? Answer. The truth, okay? All right, come, come on with me. What do you say? The truth. Question number two, how do you say it? In love. Good, okay. Here's the third question to consider. When and where should it be said? When and where should it be said? The text actually gives us an answer. Look at this little phrase here. I don't want you to miss this either. Words that are good for building up as fits the occasion. You see that little phrase there? Words that fit the occasion. There's the when and where. When and where do you say it? When it fits the occasion. So many people just skip over that. And so many people speak abruptly. You have to consider that. You have to consider not only what to say or how to say, but consider the moment. Consider the atmosphere. Consider the attitude of the person you're talking with. Consider the setting. Spouses, maybe right when dad gets home from work is not the best time to bring up a significant issue in your relationship. You've maybe been there. You know, mom has been dealing with kids all day. She's frustrated and, and wants to pass the kids off to dad. And dad has been dealing with older kids all day, coworkers and employees and employers that have been frustrating and difficult. You're both tired. You're both on edge. It's not the occasion. Not the occasion. Consider the occasion and wait. Wait to speak. Maybe pulling someone aside at a gathering to address how they offended you. Maybe it's not the best time. Maybe a better time would be to schedule a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them to get coffee with them throughout the week so that they're not distracted by the fact that you brought this up in public and everybody's around you. Consider the occasion. What do I say the truth? How do I say it in love? And thirdly, when and where do I say it? As it fits the occasion. Make your speech tasteful. Be wise with your words, like salt seasoning to your food. 
You want it to be salty and good, not putrid and rotten. Consider your words. Speak upliftingly. Number five, the last one here. Forgive kindly. Forgive kindly. Look at this list here in 31. These are all things you need to put off. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You remember, as I said previously in a sermon on patient love, the greatest test of your faith is when someone else hurts you. How do you respond? How do you respond? Will you forgive them or take vengeance into your own hands? How do you respond when others hurt you? Do you become embittered? Do you hold it over their head? Do you keep score? Do you distance yourself from them? Do you passive, aggressive, uh, give them the silent treatment? Or do you retaliate? You unleash your wrath upon them. <laughs> You're going to outdo their hurt with yours. You're, you know, the shots were fired, and so get ready to get shot back. I'm going to win this argument. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to come out on top. How do you respond when others hurt you? Jesus through his word, and the Apostle Paul says, those kinds of response need to be put away. Bitterness, unrighteous anger, wrath, clamor, slander, all that, put that away. Put on kindness, tenderheartedness, that's a deep compassion from the bowels, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's not a clearer picture of this, Christian, not a clearer picture of this than at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. This is where we'll end. Looking at our Savior Jesus dying on the cross for us. Luke 23, 33. This is where we'll end. The clearest example of forgiving those who hurt you. This is amazing. Look at verse 33. So Luke chapter 23, verse 33. I don't have it on the screen, so you need to look at a Bible. 23, 33. This is the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. When they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus is being crucified by the intent of the Jews and at the hands of the Romans. We see both of them in this scene. Look at what Jesus says in verse 34 and let those words rock you. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Wow. And look at the next sentence. It's even more astonishing. As he says that out loud, the reason it's written down is because he said that out loud. Somebody heard him say that, and Luke is recording that. Look at the next sentence. He's saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. And what are these people doing? They cast lots to divide his garments. 
He's saying, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing while these Roman soldiers are casting lots. They're betting so that they can have the garments of this famous Jew. And the people, look what else happens. As he says this out loud, the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers, here's the Romans, also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews, written in mockery, but the irony is that it was true. One of the criminals hanging next to him says, two, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The others rebuked him The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Wow. How can Jesus say those words? Forgive them, they don't know know what they're doing, while all those people are attacking him. Crucifying, killing, scoffing, mocking him. What an amazing display of love. You know why he was able to do that? Because he loved us. He loved us enough to go to the cross, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be scourged, to die ultimately, to save us from our sins. The Lord Jesus hung there on the cross for you. And if you're here today and you have not yet believed in Jesus, you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, surrender your life to this kind of master. Give your life to the Lord Jesus who died on the cross to save you from your sins. It's the only way that you can be saved is to believe this man and to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins too what an incredible example if the lord jesus could forgive those who crucified him mocked him scourged him couldn't you christian as you learn from your master couldn't you do the same can't you also by the power of the spirit and following the lord jesus christ can't you forgive those who've hurt you can't you forgive the coworker who's thrown you under the bus? Can't you forgive the spouse who constantly nags you or says things that have hurt so bad? Can't you quickly forgive your children when they mess up again and again and again and again? Can't we be a people moved by kindness and compassion just like our Lord and forgive one another? Forgive one another those who have sinned against us, even our enemies. Learn your master. Follow the way of Christ. Show kindness and compassion to all. Forgive them as Christ has forgiven you, the text says. Look at Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There you have it. Five commands, everyday commands that you can apply this week. I encourage you again to write something down specifically. Write one command down that you want to grow in and apply this week. Where do you start in the Christian life? There are the principles right in front of you, a massive stack of dirty plates. You've got a lot going on in your life, work, home, and a variety of hobbies. Where do you start? Speak truthfully. 
Anger righteously. Work honestly. Speak upliftingly and forgive kindly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, (laughs) thank you for being specific in your word. Thank you for giving us the practical. Lord, we need it. We need the practical instructions. Lord, we need you to make it plain as day as to what we are to do, how we are to live the Christian life. God, I pray that today every single one of us would be doers of the word and not just hearers. That we would apply it in our life and grow to become more like Christ. As we remember Jesus and his sacrifice now through communion, Lord, I pray that we would worship you with full hearts knowing how much you gave for us. Knowing how great your love was for us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.